Heavenly Father, what a, what a wonderful hymn and song to draw us into your presence. For a thousand tongues to sing, 10,000 blessings. Lord, we come and acknowledge that you are our Savior and you are the Lord. And we're so thankful that you are an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God who is filled with love and mercy, grace and truth. And in the person of your son, you have given to us a means of salvation to recover us from our own rebellion and sin and rescue us from eternal punishment. Because of that, Lord, we bless your name and we gather to praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Among my prize possessions are two small green New Testaments. The first green New Testament was published around 1930 by the Daily Bible Reading Society. It was published in Oxford and was handed out in a million campaign. That is a campaign to get a million students to read the Bible on a regular basis. So on the opening cover, there is a commitment. I will read this Bible one chapter every day and it's signed by the owner of the Bible. And then in the back of the Bible, my decision for Christ, it says. Believing the Lord Jesus Christ died for me, I now accept him as my savior, my Lord, and my king. And by his grace, I will live for him every day. And then the owner of the Bible who believed that statement signed it and dated it. It's signed by Ruth Allen, who happens to be my mom. And the date is December 31, 1933. We found this in her possessions when she died just a little over four years ago. And it was the greatest thing we found. The second Green Bible was published about 30 years later, early 1960. This is a New Testament in Psalms, almost identical in size. It, is, it was published by the Christian Service Brigade. You might remember some of you. It was like uh, Christian Boy Scouts, and I think it was popular here at South during those years of the 50s and 60s. Had that motto of a stockade and an and army a little bit. Um, and so, published in 1962, there is at the end of this a witnessing tool with verses to use uh, to uh, point someone to Jesus Christ so that they might trust him. And in the back of it, it has something called the Romans Road. If you've ever heard of that, we'll talk about that a little more in a moment. And then the owner signed it at the beginning and then signed it in the back, saved, June 21, 1962, and that's me. Um, 
I think I might have trusted Christ before age nine, and I know I trusted him several times after <laughs> 1962. I think I told you I had a problem with assurance of salvation, and every time an invitation would be given, I would be down to the front and kind of go through all over it again, didn't want to miss it, didn't really understand what was going on. But this is also a prized possession, saved. Do you know that you're saved? You may not have a date written in a Bible, although that's not a bad thing, but the most important thing is to know that you are saved. And there may be no better portion of scripture to turn to in all the Bible to talk about how you can be saved. And I'm encouraging you this morning to open up to Romans and the 10th chapter as we continue our study through this wonderful book. Just to remind you, we're kind of in the middle section, chapters 9 through 11 focuses on the problem of Jewish unbelief. In chapter nine, Paul starts out with a hypothetical wish. I wish I could be accursed so that my kinsmen, my fellow Israelites might come to faith. And he starts out chapter 10 with a prayerful wish, saying it's my heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites to be saved. That's the burden on his heart, that they would come to know Christ as their savior. By the way, the Bible has some terms that are interchangeable. Justified and saved are basically uh, the same thing, substantially the same thing. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. In chapter nine, Paul talks a little bit about Israel's past and their rejection of the gospel. In chapter 10, he talks about their current status, but in chapter 11, it's a very optimistic chapter as Paul talks about future Israel and how there will be a grand and great revival near the end of time. We haven't seen it yet, but it's coming. And he even uses the terminology, all Israel will be saved. We last ended Romans 9 with a discussion of the doctrine of election as it has to do with salvation. Always a curious and mysterious truth, but a very important one. I like the words from Kent Hughes, who was a pastor in Wheaton for many years. He said this, those who insist they can solve the mystery between divine election, which is the emphasis of chapter nine, and human responsibility, which we're going to see is the emphasis in chapter 10, they do so at the expense of one truth or the other. If you wanna solve the mystery, what people often do is deny one of those two things. And yet we need to hold them in tension much like we do the doctrine of the Trinity where we cannot understand how three can be one, but we believe it. And it's in the same context as Paul goes through this portion of scripture. But Ken Hughes gives us a warning because sometimes there's too much emphasis on chapter nine and, and we forget the emphasis of chapter 10. He says it's possible to get enough vertical theology in chapter nine so as to make horizontal theology almost negligible. We emphasize one over the other 
and have a tendency not to embrace them in truth. He goes on to say in chapter 10, God places the responsibility for Israel's lostness on Israel. God rejected Israel because Israel rejected God, the gospel. If you're without Christ, it's not because you're not elect, it's because you're rejecting Christ. Hear me on that. You say, but that doesn't go with what we just studied in chapter nine. Again, these are mysterious doctrines you hold together, but don't deny the emphasis of scripture. When it's there, embrace it. And at least five different times in chapter 10, the emphasis will clearly be on Israel's responsibility and the consequence of their decision being their own. And in the very last verse of chapter 10, all day long, God stands with his hands held out to a disobedient and to an obstinate people. Hands held out, longing for them to come. I quoted last week, but I think it bears repeating the wonderful pastor Charles Simeon from Cambridge in England who pastored there for about 50 years and started out with tremendous opposition but continued to be faithful for all of those years. He warned his congregation of the danger of forsaking scripture for a philosophical theological system. He said, when I came to a text which speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. But when the apostles exhort me to repentance and obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and action, I give myself up to that side of the question, he wrote. And then he used this analogy that was so appropriate in that day of the Industrial Revolution end of the uh, 1700s, no, 1800s and and into the 1900s. No, end of 17 into 18. He said, as wheels in a complicated machine may move in opposite directions and yet subserve a common end, so may truths apparently opposite be perfectly reconcilable with each other and equally serve the purposes of God in the accomplishment of man's salvation. So I dare not make my systematic theology more systematic than scripture itself, said a a, uh, great bishop of Liverpool, John Ryle. All of that to say, when we get into chapter 10, we're now seeing the other side of the coin in God's purpose and in our salvation. So let's look at verse one. Romans 10, verse one, Paul says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for you, for the Israelites, is that you might be saved, that you might know it and that you might experience God's forgiving grace and his eternal life. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So Paul's sorrowful heart in chapter nine, verse one, when he wishes he could be a curse so that his loved one's kindred could be saved, now turns into a passionate Prayer, and by the way, that's the best thing you can do with your sorrows and your passions is to turn them into prayer. 
The best thing you can do for those that you weep over who do not yet know Christ is to pray and pray for God to move in their soul. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. Enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism. And there's a lot of that today. And Paul was once like that. Having a zeal for God, he, he, he doesn't say that his kindred, the Israelites, the Jewish people are not zealous. Oh, they are. And he was once one of them. He mentions in Galatians chapter one, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In Philippians, he says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As for zeal, persecuting the church and as for righteousness if I do say so myself I was faultless <laughs> oh that's the apostle Paul zeal without knowledge until he saw the person of Jesus Christ and you'll notice that there are a couple negatives that come out of this they have this zeal for God but they don't know what God has done to save them We'll call this the wrong way. There's a right way and a wrong way, explained very clearly in chapter 10. Here's the wrong way. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, verse 3. They did not know about it or they would not acknowledge it and therefore they did not submit to it not only did they not submit, they went about to establish their own righteousness, to build their own standing, standing status before God, homemade righteousness. Now, what does the Bible say about homemade righteousness? Well, there's a familiar verse in Isaiah 64 that simply says all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Rags that are so soiled they only can be thrown away and are good for nothing, repugnant. That's your righteousness, that's my righteousness. And if we try to build up a salvation status based on our righteousness, how horrible is that? That must stink to high heaven. Some things are really good homemade, right? I mean like, bakery goods you go in a store and buy a bunch of stuff you know not so good but you go to a bakery and even from the outside you're already committed you know there's no such thing as going in and saying well I, I think I'll just look to see what they have <laughs> no no the smell gets you because it's so good but there's a lot of things that are homemade that are aren't very good a lot of different things. I mean, suppose you say, you know, I really don't like what GM does. I'm going to build my own car. Well, there's a few of you out there that could do it, but most of us could not, and it would be dangerous. Not as good. Impossible to do. Homemade righteousness never works. You need a God-given righteousness. And that's what Romans chapter 10 is all about. And by the way, this isn't limited to the Jews. This is man's biggest problem. 
We don't know about God's righteousness, or if we do, we reject it, and we think that our righteousness is just as good. When you think about it, we're saying our righteousness is just as good as Jesus. What we're saying is that um, God's wrong when he says that our righteousness has holes in it and is deplorable. We say to ourselves, I don't believe an honest person, a sincere person who is religious, whatever the religion may be, I don't believe God would send such a person to hell because they're honest and sincere, but sincerity is not truth. And you and I know very well that there are people who are very sincere, but sincerely wrong, just think about the terrorists who flew planes into the Twin Towers in New York. They were zealous and they were sincere and they were committed and they were lost. Now you don't want to put yourself in the same category as the terrorists, you're, you're much better than they are, but my friend, your righteousness is no better than theirs. For all has sinned, Jew and Gentile, and are short come short of the glory of God. So verse four says that Christ is the end of the law. He brings it to its logical end. I like the way the New Living Translation has it. Christ has put an end to the law. In other words, as far as it being a saving device, that's been totally rejected. What you have in the law is the very tool that is used to show us of our need, to show us how desperate we are, how weak we are. The law cannot save, not because the law isn't good, but because we are weak. And the strength of the law is that it shows us our weakness and makes us see that we cannot be saved. So Christ is the one who put an end of all that talk about the law saving us. That's why in Romans 6, we're not under the law. In Romans 7, we've died to the law. Also in Romans 7, we've been released from its power and curse. How? Christ became a curse for us. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians that Jesus died on the cross and was cursed by the law, paying its price so that you and I would not be cursed by it. So verse five, Paul quotes Moses from the book of Leviticus. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. And by the way, he's gonna make a contrast between a righteousness that is by the law and a righteousness that comes through faith. He's been doing that all through his letter. But here he goes again. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things must live by them. And the print in the lighter blue is that quotation from Leviticus 18. In other words, if you say you want to be saved by the law, go for it. <laughs> but it's not going to save you. How much of the law do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? One. Just one. And then you are condemned. The Apostle Paul quotes this very same verse in the book of Galatians, but adds to it at the end 
No one can be justified by the law. So it, it is there as a tutor to instruct us. It is there as a standard to show us how much we fall short so that it might drive us to the Lord. In this sense, Christ is the end of the law. Augustus Toplady wrote a wonderful hymn years ago that expresses this. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Oh, the wrong way is to be ignorant of God's righteousness, to deny or to be unwilling to submit to it and try to build your own. So then the Apostle Paul does something very unique to describe the right way. It really begins in verse six. And this is a quotation from that section of scripture that Pastor Doug wrote about, or read uh, just a moment ago from Deuteronomy 30. In fact, Paul uses Moses to go against Moses. <laughs> he, he pulls out from, from Moses' farewell address a rather loosely applied section of scripture. Moses was trying to say that the law is near you. You don't have to send someone up into heaven to bring it down or send someone across a sea to bring it to you so that you can obey it. No, it's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That was the application dealing with the law of Moses. And now Paul says, well, that's true of the gospel. How can you use the words of Moses dealing with the law and then apply it to the gospel? Only at this point of comparison, they're both accessible. They're both near. So we pick up our reading in verse six. The righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, so now he's applying it in a gospel sense. Or who will descend into the deep, into Hades, that is to bring Christ up. Because God has already done this. The reason why these questions are useless, unnecessary, is because God has accomplished it in Christ. This would be denying the incarnation who's going to bring Christ down. Or denying the resurrection, who's going to bring Christ up? It's already happened. And now he talks about this righteousness that is by faith, verse 6. The law is unattainable. You cannot obey it. But Christ is accessible. He's done everything for you. So in this dramatic imagery, we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ, in loving us so much, has come to be with us. He's not remote, nor unrevealed, nor unknown. It wasn't done in a corner. Jesus died for the world to see. 
and was raised again to give life for all who believe. And then notice the application in verse eight. But what does it say? Again, quoting from Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word or the message of faith that we proclaim. It's near us. In fact, in so close, it's inside of us. We've heard it, we remember it. I like what John Stott says, Christ has come and died and been raised and is therefore immediately accessible to us by faith. We do not need to do anything. Everything that is necessary has already been done. The whole emphasis is on the close, ready, easy accessibility of Christ and his gospel. When I got my mom's New Testament, I went through it to see if she marked her Bible like I do, and she didn't. But I found one verse that was circled in pencil, John 3.16. Isn't that wonderful? That's the accessibility of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What a gift so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now Paul, taking his cue from Deuteronomy 30, grabs hold of the word mouth and heart to explain the gospel. You see, Christ is accessible and the gospel is attainable. You can have it, it's close by and you can connect. Salvation can be yours. It's so close by the mercy of God. You say, well, how can I be saved? And here perhaps is the clearest instruction you'll find anywhere, the end of the Romans road. The Romans road starts in chapter three, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And then it goes to chapter six, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then it goes back to chapter five, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then it ends in chapter 10 with these words, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, notice those words from Deuteronomy 30, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and here's the promise, you will be saved. Is God a liar? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's so close and seems so easy. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Christ. But it's something so simple a child can do it of the age nine or of the age five when there's understanding. Verse 10 explains, for with the heart you believe and you're justified, saved and justified, same thing, substantially. And it is with your mouth that you confess your faith and you are saved. From the earliest times of Christianity, the, the, the basic creed was this, Jesus is Lord. And that's what you are to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. 
You're also to believe that this Jesus who is Lord is the one who died and was raised again. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Lordship implies ownership. I like what Charles Canfield says about this creed, Jesus is Lord. It acknowledges that Jesus shares with the one and only God the same name, nature, authority, power, majesty, and eternality. He is one and the same with the Father. Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? No, I mean, mean, do you believe it? Because if you believe it in here, you will confess it out here. Matthew 12, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can't believe something in here without at some point confessing it out here. Charles Hodge said, the want of courage to confess is decisive evidence of the want of the heart to believe. Confess me before men, I'll confess you before my fathers in heaven. But the reverse is also true. You see, a heart truly redeemed wants to tell other people, as imperfect, as inconsistent as that confession may be, there will be confession. There's inward belief, there's outward expression, which follows the Old Testament parallelism of two truths being joined together. The heart is thinking, and the heart is feeling, and the heart is willing. There's intellect, emotions, volition. It all works together unless you believe half-heartedly, which unfortunately some people do. I believe with my head, intellect, yeah, Jesus lived. But with my heart and volition, I won't give myself to Christ. With my emotions, I won't. Some people believe emotionally. And then after a few, day pass, a few days pass, they become rational and realize they were just led away by some emotions. One time, we had a Bible study at our high school and several young men came to Christ. One man's name was Russ. I'll never forget this. He was so excited. The next day, he caught me in the hallway in high school and he said, Don, can I take back what I did last night? I said, what do you mean, Russ? He said, well, I, I, I don't want to do it. I said, you don't have to take it back. Apparently, you didn't do it. And I don't remember ever talking to Russ again. No, if it's not with all of your heart, it's not with your heart. And that's why you can simply say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved because a true belief is mind, emotions, and will, and shows total conversion. Now notice verse 11. By the way, verse 11, 12, and 13, they're just expressing uh, what has been done. It's, it's basically something of a commentary on what has been said. It's all about Jesus. And it's based on two Old Testament texts, one in Isaiah 28, which is verse 11, And one from Joel chapter 2, which is verse 13. All scripture says, anyone, or as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, will never be confounded, will never be confused. 
And notice the word uh, trust or believe. Anyone who trusts in him, anyone who believes in him, which is a summary of this idea of confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart. It's an idea of commitment. And notice it says in verse 12 that Jesus is accessible to everyone, Jew and Gentile, same Lord over all. And he blesses all who call upon his name. And then verse 13, this is a quotation from Joel chapter two. And what is so significant about this, in Joel chapter two, the prophet Joel was speaking about Yahweh, the Lord in all capitals. But when it's used here by Paul, it's referring to Jesus Christ. Now that is either the height of blasphemy or Jesus is Lord. Paul did it in Acts too when he quoted this same portion of scripture and applied the passage to Yahweh to Jesus. Well, the answer is Jesus is God incarnate. He is Lord. He is Yahweh, and anyone who calls on him will be saved. Did you notice the promise? The promise in verse nine, you will be saved. The promise in verse 13, call on the name and you will be saved. The Bible makes it abundantly clear everyone in Adam is a sinner. And the Bible equally makes it clear everyone in Christ is saved. And how do you get in Christ? Here it is, verse 9, 10, and 11. The Spirit working in your heart to open your eyes, to draw you to himself, to work that miracle of regeneration. But there is this responsibility. You must believe. Verse 13, the broadest possible invitation, whosoever. The easiest possible condition shall call. The simplest possible supplication on the name of the Lord. And the greatest possible salvation, you shall be saved forever. One time a pastor was giving a gospel track on the street to a very well-to-do lady, at least you could tell by her dress, she appeared to be of the elite class. Apparently a famous person too, because when the track was handed to her, she said, young man, do you know who I am? And he said, madam, there's coming a day of judgment, and on that day, it will not make any difference who you are. Do you know who I am? Yes. For like me, you are a sinner in need of a savior. And here he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to claim a date. You know, it's true you could be, you can be converted without knowing the day that you were saved. I have offered to you multiple dates. I was born on one day. And there were people to attest to it and even write a birth certificate to acknowledge it. But, you know, some people don't have a birth certificate and so they'll go through a legal process where they establish one that's close to the day. 
That's not a bad idea, spiritually speaking, to write in your Bible. Maybe you, you don't know when you trusted Christ, but bow before him with Romans 10 and say, today I make it clear, I am trusting you. And write the date. The most important thing, though, is to know that with your heart and with your mouth, you've called upon the historic Jesus who died for sinners, was, rose again, seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over everything, and is accessible to all who call. Horatio Bonar, years ago, wrote his own conversion hymn. I'll not read the whole thing, but it's great. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh is born can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. So I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine, my God, my joy, my light. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he, because he loveth me. I live because he lives. Let's pray. Let me ask you the simple question. Are you saved? You say, I don't think people can know. I'm sorry, but I disagree. The Bible says you can but I don't know what to do. Read Romans 9 and 10. And if your heart is honest and sincere as you call upon Jesus, he will save you, for the Bible tells us Christ never turns anyone away. And then begin to live your life for the one who gave his life for you. Let's just take a moment to pray. The beginning of a new year. Are you truly saved? Oh God, speak to hearts this morning, I pray. Waken up hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel today and let them see the glory and beauty of the Savior Jesus who is close by. Amen.